Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians, where Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have learned while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. On today's episode, we talk to Sanj Katyal, a radiologist and the founder of the Positive Psychology Program for Physicians. He's the author of Positive Philosophy, Ancient and Modern Wisdom to Create a Flourishing Life. We talk about what positive psychology is and how it specifically applies to physicians and how we can use it to improve the quality of our lives. We talk about how to find more meaning in our work and why this is particularly important if we do a lot of repetitive tasks like radiologists looking at scans why we should be outsourcing as much of our job as we can, and use that time to not make more money, but enjoy more life. And that gets us into the concept of hedonic adaptation, also known as stop buying all that crap, it isn't making you happy. We discuss why meditation is misunderstood, and why we should all be doing it, and advocating that our patients do it as well. And we finish with the power of gratitude and negative visualization. And he gives us a tip for the best use of our time while waiting at a red light. This and all episodes are expertly produced by Karin Gilfrey at Gilfrey Studios. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Sanj Katyal, a radiologist who recently wrote a book, Positive Philosophy, Ancient and Modern Wisdom to Create a Flourishing Life. So we get into his background on positive psychology, reasons for writing the book, and how, as a physician, lessons from that book can help other physicians. So Dr. Katyal, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks. My pleasure, Brad. So first, just give us a little background on your training, where you went to med school and residency, and we'll start with that. Sure. I, uh, I did my undergrad at Carnegie Mellon here in Pittsburgh uh, in chemical and biomedical engineering and went to med school at uh, New York University School of Medicine. And I came back to Pittsburgh to do internship, residency, and body fellowship in radiology. Uh, and from there, I, I worked, uh, did some research, worked in academics, and then shifted my focus from the research in radiology to the business of radiology and the business of medicine. Joined a, a private startup radiology company where I managed a group of about 100 radiologists for the last 10 years. And uh, it was really over that time that I began kind of experimenting with a lot of these ideas. Uh, you know, as part of my job, I would travel to a lot of different hospitals and uh, interact with uh, different medical executive committees and hospital uh, clinical leaders. And I began seeing a lot of discontent among the physician community uh, over the past probably eight to 10 years. And I, I couldn't figure out why. Um, and one day I was driving back from one of these hospitals, and, and I remember really clearly thinking, you know, I wasn't unhappy, but I was wondering why I wasn't happier. You know, I had achieved really more than anything I had dreamed of. I was married to my best friend. We have a great relationship. We have four healthy kids. Uh, I had a really good job at a startup designing kind of innovative workflow. And, you know, growing up, I really didn't have much tragedy. Both sets of parents are alive. And I began to worry that if I couldn't really figure out how to how to experience more joy and fulfillment when things were this good? How was I ever going to deal with any real adversity when it came? 
And so from that point on, I really started searching for answers. And really, I was searching for answers to this single question. How can I learn not just to function, but to also flourish? And that search took me to a variety of topics, philosophy, uh, positive psychology. I, I came across a book by uh, Tal Ben-Shahar uh, called Happier. And uh, he's, his claim to fame is he, he taught the largest class at Harvard in positive psychology. And uh, I reached out to him, uh, told him I loved his book, and I like the scientific approach to happiness. And he invited me to Whole Being Institute, uh, which was running a kind of a year-long intensive uh, certification program in positive psychology. And that's kind of how I came to, to get uh, certified in formal training in positive psychology. Wait, stop for a second, because you mentioned that you just reached out. You read a book that you liked, and you just reached out to the person who wrote it. Can you just give a little more detail on that interaction? Because sometimes we might read something we like, but can't really imagine getting a, a response from an author if we really enjoy their book, right? How, how did that take place? I mean, I just, I just found his email and I just, I just emailed him and I just said, I, you know, I'm a physician uh, interested in well-being and, uh, and I really enjoyed your your book. I I liked he had a he had kind of a model based in science of uh, of happiness, and uh, you know I just wanted to I just thanked him for writing a great book that I enjoyed, and asked him where I could learn more. You know I think I think people underestimate or overestimate the difficulty of reaching out to people. I mean when I wrote my book, I reached out to a variety of very famous authors and sent him the book. You know, I mean, I asked him first if it would be okay if I sent him the book, but I talked to them about how their work has influenced me, has influenced the ideas in the book. And you know, most of them were very receptive. I guess it's always nice to meet a fan. So if anyone wants to email me about the podcast, I'm uh, I'm very receptive as well. And, and I will be <laughs> replying. So, so you talked about your training in positive psychology. Is that the whole being Institute? Yes. So tell us a little about that. It was a it was a really great uh, experience. So we had a we had a one week immersion, on site immersion at the beginning of the program, and then we had uh, another at the end of the program where we had a final project that we would present. And along the way, we had kind of online modules and group uh, interactive projects uh, together. So you could really you know you could do it alongside a, a full-time busy job, uh, although it, it made for a very busy year. But the, the, the origins of the idea from my book came from my final project. And it was really the, I wanted to write a book that I wish I had read 20 years ago. Um, everything that I knew now, I wish I had learned when I was, you know, finishing up college or heading to med school. And that's the angle that I wrote the book from, but that really all started from my final project and, and whole being institute. So why did you write the book? Let's explore that for a little bit. Well, I, I had all these ideas and, and I went on this kind of 10 year journey to, to figure out, you know, how to be happier. And I was looking around and, and I saw a lot of people that were successful by anybody's standards, and, and particularly physicians who were really filled with you know, mild to moderate levels of anxiety, 
depression, just general you know, discontent. And, you know, we as physicians, we live our lives kind of waiting to get to the next level in our life, right? Next level of training, becoming an attending, becoming a partner, and then eventually, you know, waiting to retire or leave medicine. And I think a lot of us feel unfulfilled when we get to each stage. And, and, I, and I wanted to understand why that was. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of answers through positive psychology and also through philosophy. Um, and, and I really wanted to write these uh, concepts down into uh, kind of a easy to understand daily code of optimal living. And I was really doing it for my kids. I have four kids and I, I really wanted, you know, them to have something concise that were really major lessons that I had learned in case I'm not around. Yeah, I remember reading that in the book and I thought it was a really beautiful reason for writing the book that uh, uh, a, a life full of lessons condensed into one tome, one succinct tome for, for them to, to read likely again and again at different stages in their life. Because I think as, as you get older and mature, there are different ways to interpret and different lessons to be learned that have different significance in, in each stage of your each stage of your life. So I really, I really admire that that reason for writing the book. I think we all have things that we that we hope to pass on to our children and and you know fear. Well, what if what if we can't? So you've yeah. overcome that by by writing it all in a succinct way. Thank you. So the book wasn't really written with physicians in mind though right like as as i read the book it's it's you i don't think you even mention the practice of medicine in it it's really written for everybody yeah and that was on purpose that was my editor's uh recommendation initially it was really for physicians um and she said this is you know these concepts don't just apply to physicians we understand the crisis of burnout we understand the crisis of physician suicide and mental health but she said a lot of people have that and a lot of people, you know, can benefit from, he from hearing these things. And so we, we took out some of the specific anecdotes for physicians. Um, and it was really for that reason that I started uh, teaching these concepts specifically to physicians. It's just kind of my way to give back to medicine, which, is, which has been, you know, a great career for me. Uh, and my way to contribute uh, in my small way to to uh, to the well-being of physicians. Uh, so. so that gets us into the positive psychology program for physicians, right? Your your program for helping physicians who are suffering from burnout. Can can you tell us a little bit about your program? Sure. You know, I think I think the the focus on burnout is is kind of like the focus on traditional psychology. It really is focusing on the absence of disease or absence of negative uh, things in your life, right? If you think about traditional psychology, it focused on moving the person who was functioning at a minus seven or minus eight and moving them to a zero or plus one. You know, positive psychology said, well, that's good. We need that focus, but we also need to need to remember that there's a lot of people that are functioning at a plus one plus two that have a ton of unrealized potential and we can use proven evidence-based techniques to move these people to a plus seven or plus eight on the scale of flourishing 
and I look at burnout kind of the same way, you know, they're, they're, they're barely functioning or not functioning and we're just trying to get them to zero. But most of the physicians that I know, and, and I've interacted with, you know, a lot, most of them do function, right? We're able to kind of, you know, get through the week. We, um, you know, make it to our kids games. We, you know, go out to dinner with friends on the weekends, but we still kind of live lives, or at least, and I'm, I'm including myself in this, uh, that really are far from our full potential and really from uh, far from our version of flourishing uh, in our own lives. And I think that's where positive psychology and some of the evidence-based research findings uh, can really be transformative for physicians, not just moving them away from burnout, which that can, that has happened, but also taking the people that are functioning and moving them really closer to to flourishing. So let's let's get into the book then. Um, so there are important uh, some important concepts, and and I appreciate some of the times that you do allude to yourself in the book because you're you're mentioning these lessons, and it it sounds like you're this Zen master, and then you bring us back to reality and say, actually, this is what really happens in my life. So it, it allows us to get a little glimpse of, of what life is really like for you and, uh, you know, that you're really very similar to the rest of us just trying to find a way to, to improve yourself. Um, so one of the concepts that you talk about is, is eudaimonia, if I'm saying that correctly. And it, it sounds a little like a skin disorder, um, <laughs> something you might want to treat with an ointment, but, but it's not. So what, what is it? Yeah. So, before we talk about what eudaimonia is, you know, let's talk about the word happiness. And, uh, you know, I think the, I don't, I try not to use the word happiness uh, too much. Like if you look at the website and the program, there's really very little talking about happiness. And I think the problem I have with the word is that it's really incorrectly used. Uh, you know, if, if you ask somebody, hey, are you, do you want to be happy? The answer is, of course. And then if you go a step further and say, well, what does it mean for you to be happy? you know, it becomes a little less clear. And I think the problem is most people think of happiness as a transient emotional state. You know, I was happy last week when I was on, on vacation, or I'll be happy when I'm this weekend when I'm not on call. And that's not, that's not the type of happiness that Aristotle was talking about when he made his famous quote, you know, happiness is the meaning and purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence, I think, something like that. The word that he and other philosophers really use is eudaimonia, and that really means a state of optimal living over a long period of time, or flourishing is really the, the, the correct translation. And so it's not a transient emotional state, but it's really like, are, how are several aspects of your life going for you over a long period of time? Uh, and, and that's that's really the, the goal. You know, any successful life is going to have struggles and it's not going to be, uh, you know, pain free. And you think back to your own lives, some of the best periods of growth and success followed periods of significant adversity and uh, hardship. And uh, so I think moving away from this transient state uh, and thinking about a state of optimal living over a period of time, longer period of time is, is a better way to keep things in perspective. And what do you mean by optimal living? 
flourishing really, you know, uh, like are, are, are mentally, are you, are you engaged in a career that utilizes your abilities uh, from a family perspective? Are you, uh, do you have good work-life integration? Are you raising uh, resilient, responsible kids that care about the world and not just their next video game? Uh, spiritually, are you connected to a, uh, a cause larger than yourself, whether that's, you know, religion, service, charity, nature, whatever, you know, so kind of the, the entire spectrum of, of being um, is, is really what flourishing is about. Okay, so you really, you really um, broke it, broke it down pretty succinctly there, right? So there's your work life that you want to be able to maximize your potential, but at the same time, not to the detriment of your family life, which you want to be able to maximize the, um, the, the development of your children. And then the third aspect seems to be service, right? You, you mentioned service among other things, but you know, spiritual, religious nature, but ultimately that's in terms of that's, that's giving back. So I think all of that can really be classified as service. So that those those are the three elements. Uh, am I am I leaving anything out? I think I think physical well being is a big part. Uh, you know, you as physicians, we know that you know if you don't have your health, you know you're you're in a you're in for a world of of pain. So physical uh, well being uh, through nutrition, optimal nutrition, uh, exercise. Um, is is really a, another key component because uh, you know how you feel physically can obviously affect how you feel mentally, and vice versa. So um, the, the mind body connection is definitely another aspect of flourishing that, that needs to be optimized. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book that uh, applies specifically to physicians is is finding meaning in what you do. So we'll explore what just one of those subsets of, of the flourishing and that. In your work life, um, and I, and I think this is probably more challenging in your specialty than in others, right? Because as a radiologist, at the beginning during your training, you're learning so much, and you're interacting. If you're especially at an academic hospital, you have all those different specialists coming through to talk to you, and you're finding out what's going on with the cases, and you're you're helping people to to learn from. Uh, learn what you know and help them to interpret imaging. So you're getting a lot of positive feedback, but, but as you get out into, into practice, you might end up just looking at films over and over, never seeing the patients. And so you're not really finding that meaning anymore because uh, you're not seeing how you're affecting an outcome. So how, how can you help someone in a specialty like yours to, to bring meaning back into their occupation? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the reasons that radiologists have really high rates of burnout, despite, despite um, fairly good uh, work schedules and, and relatively high income, uh, is, is exactly the reasons you alluded to, is they, they lack meaning or they lose meaning in their day-to-day -day work life. And, you know, if you think about what brings what, what brings meaning to physicians in general, it's really that interaction with the patient, it's helping the patient, it's feeling like you're contributing to the, to the care and improvement of health of that patient. And, and then it's also um, having uh, a, you know, 
discourse with your referring physicians, your colleagues, and uh, technologists in the department. And radiologists are, uh, you know, they're removed from all of that potentially. So, you know, I was working with a radiologist uh, a couple of years ago, and he had a real problem with this. And so what we decided to do is every third patient that came up on the work list, because we read probably 100 cases a day, give or take, you know, some, every third or fourth case, you know, relate that patient's demographic to somebody you know um, in your life and read it from that perspective, whether it's an aunt or a, you know, a family member or a friend. And if you do that enough, you start thinking about each case from a, from a patient perspective. It's not just a, another name or it's just not another rule out appy. It's actually a 35 year old for, you know, that, that, that you may be able to relate to better. And doing that um, really helped uh, this radiologist and really infused, uh, re-infused, I should say, a sense of meaning and purpose from his work life uh, in there. And I do that all the time when I'm reading cases. Uh, and the other thing is that, you know, you know that the referring physician interactions as well as patient interactions are important. So you try to optimize the time and be present for those interactions. Uh, so when I'm doing a liver biopsy or a tumor ablation, I'll spend, I'll spend a lot of extra time with a patient, with a patient's family, because I know that I'm going to get just as much out of it as they are. Um, and I think that's just, just being aware of, of what aspects of your job uh, provide this sense of meaning, um, I think, is a, is a good step. And then just trying to figure out ways to design your workflow to optimize those interactions uh, can go a long way. Yeah. So what you mentioned optimizing the workflow. What would you say to the people that say, I, listen, I just don't have time for that. I just, I've got too much pressure to read all these cases and see all these patients. I just, I just can't do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that that's a problem. I mean, we have, we, you know, we, if you think about like if we're referring to phys, uh, phys, family medicine or an internal medicine uh, physician, they're, probable point of interaction or what I call physician zone time, which is there you're, you're, when you're in the zone and you're getting meaning out of your, your, um, you're using your skill to help somebody and you're deriving meaning from that interaction. That's your kind of physician zone time. Theirs is really the, the um, patient interaction, right? And EMRs and data entry have really made, made a lot of this difficult. And so, you know, what we did in, in my startup was we used scribes for radiology. So everything was done. And the only thing that we had to do was look at the films, be present while we're reading the films, think about what we were reading and all the transcription and the pre preloading of ICD-10 cases were already put in there. And the post uh, transcription and checking for typos was done by somebody else. And reason we did that was not so we could read, you know, 200 films instead of 100. We did that so we could buy time to do these other things, to spend extra time with, with technologists, teaching them, spend time with referring physicians, not being bothered when a, when a doctor calls and wants to go over a case. 
um, and I think scribes in ED and scribes in internal medicine and family practice are, are starting to take hold and they're really returning the physician-patient interaction back to where it was or where it should be. And uh, that's, that, that's an example of optimizing your external workflow to maximize your, your physician's own time and meaning. So you mentioned two things that can, can really take us in two different directions. And I, and I want to speak about both of them. The first one was you mentioned being, being mindful and present when you're, when you're looking at the scans. And, and that's something that you discuss in the book. But, but the other is that we'll get to first is if you're being more efficient in how you're using your time as a physician, you can read more, you can see more patients, you can read more scans, and therefore you can make more money, right? Correct. So that gets us into the, the hedonic adaptation, right? You're making more money, but that's not bringing you any more of this eudaimonia. The, I mean, I'll just call it happiness, but yeah. ultimately all that money that you're, you're, you're now seeing patients with more efficiency, making more money, but that money isn't going to bring you the happiness. What you're saying is getting more out of your work, making it more fulfilling, uh, bringing it back to the connections with your colleagues and uh, technicians and patients that's where that efficiency should be used to, to direct your attention, not to making more money so you can spend more money. That's exactly right. And I think that's, that's hedonic adaptation is a huge problem. And basically what that means is we get used to everything in our lives that's constant. All the positive things in our lives, um, you know, uh, we'll eventually take for granted, you know, our, our, private practice job, our BMW, our big house, uh, um, you know, even our families, our spouse, our kids, uh, all of that will eventually um, become just kind of, you know, part of what normal life is. And uh, physicians are, are really in trouble because we live via kind of delayed gratification, right? So we, we put off um, enjoying the fruits of our labor until you know the next each difficult stage is is passed but if you just get used to whatever uh next stage you get to it's just a vicious treadmill and that's why they call it the hedonic treadmill you know that was that was a huge uh, lesson that positive psychology really elucidated from a research perspective and you know philosophers like the stoics talked about it 2000 years ago um, which is why they talked about, you know, that all you need for really happiness and, and a life of eudaimonia is, uh, is inward, right? Is, is within you. It's how you act, how you treat others. It's, it's how you, it's your virtues and your character, um, and what you do with that character to alleviate suffering around you. That's really all that they thought was needed. And, you know, positive psychology is really kind of confirming that. So a, a few episodes ago, I had someone who calls herself the frugal physician, and she she fell into that trap, right? She bought the big house and the fancy cars. So on top of all of her debt from medical school, she ended up with a bigger mountain of debt, which became very stressful. And now she blogs about her much more minimal lifestyle and how much happier she is because of it. And ultimately, that has a name, 
right? That's the hedonic adaptation uh, that that she recognized was was happening. And and I think that's this is an important point for physician burnout because you know we have this we have this these mountains of debt. Uh, we have the expectations that society puts on us for what the life they expect us to lead, the house they expect us to have, the cars they expect us to drive, the vacations they expect us to go on. And so we try to live un- up to that, not realizing that that spending makes us have to work more. And if we have to work more, it puts us under more stress. And then it just becomes that hedonic cycle and we can't keep up with it or, or, we, or we're just keeping up with it. And uh, and ultimately, it's not making us happier. And so, what what you're saying is, find things in your work life that you can outsource and offload, not in order to increase your efficiency so you can make more money, but rather increase your efficiency so you can enjoy the work you're doing, and then enjoy the time that you have away from work. That's exactly right. And it's important to understand that you know we're we're wired this way from an evolutionary perspective, you know, and I think when you think about things from an evolutionary perspective, it helps because uh, you can stop beating yourself up for it. But, you know, hedonic adaptation is a very useful uh, drive um, for, for survival because, you know, if, if things that were constant in your environment didn't kind of fade away into the background, you wouldn't be able to respond quicker to new threats uh, or stimuli in your life, right? And so this is a survival technique. And, you know, nature just wanted us to survive long enough to procreate, but didn't care how happy we were along the way. So, you know, it, it's we're wired that way, but we have, because we're wired that way, to combat, combat hedonic adaptation takes some intentional effort and strategy. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing to do is really to learn how to pay attention and cultivate attention to the good aspects of our life. And, and I think really the cultivation of attention is really going to be the new currency for everything, you know, whether it's attention to the pr- present moment and mindfulness, whether it's attention to the good aspects and cultivating a, a, a gratitude, um, an attitude of gratitude, or whether it's attention to the physician's own time and, you know, the, the aspects of your job that really give you the most meaning it's all it all comes back to attention to the right things and, well our uh, and our attention has already been monetized right all of those apps that that suck our attention and it's being sold so all of those advertisements and the the apps are designed they're like um slot machines right, exactly right. At, every so often you'll get an email that's actually of significance, but most of the time it's garbage. But you just we just keep checking and checking and checking, uh, and and same with Facebook, right? We keep scrolling and scrolling, and every so often there's something interesting, but most of it is is garbage. And they know that, and they design these algorithms uh, such that we can continue to scroll and continue to give give our attention, which is a hugely valuable currency, to them for free, and then they're selling it to someone else. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, I, I really worry about, you know, my kids generation because they're, they're, they've been raised on it. I think we, uh, you know, I'm 50, I, I'm about to turn 50 and I think my generation can, can use some strategies to really block it. But some of my, you know, my kids, friends, I see them, they're, they're just hooked on their phone all the time and they're just giving away their attention for really no 
no useful purpose. And I just taught, finished teaching a positive psychology class at a local college. And our final project was self-improvement using some techniques in positive psychology, you know, or applying uh, uh, concepts to uh, life improvement. And half the class was trying to reduce their time on their cell phone. I mean, one kid described himself as a lunatic. He would check the same thing every three or four minutes, even though he knew there was nothing new on his Twitter feed, his Instagram feed. He just couldn't stop himself. And so, you know, the intentional um, uh, protection of your attention is, is really important. And uh, there are strategies to do that, but it's, uh, it takes, takes some, some doing. So that, that mindfulness that you were talking of, uh, that you're speaking of, I think, um, you know, as physicians, when we're training, we're constantly thinking about what needs to be done next, right? As residents, we have this list of things to do and we constantly need to get it done. You know, that's, that's our job, right? Just handle it, everything that needs to be done. So we're always, as soon as we're done with it, we're on to the next thing. And even while we're doing one task, we're thinking about what needs to be done next. And now as, uh, as attendings, we have more control of our time. And so that mindfulness that, that you mentioned, we, we, we have more control over it, but we can also end up on the hamster wheel, right? We can end up, you want to, you, you said, you know, you become an attending and then you become partner and then you're thinking about retirement, but even, you know, people that are in academic jobs, they're, they're assistant professor and then they're professor, or maybe they're trying to become the chairman, right? There's always that next rung. So we're trained to think that way right? In, in medical school, in residency, you're trying to be the top of the class. You're trying to get the most competitive. How do we get off that hamster wheel and stop and, and be more mindful about what we're, where we are? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. I think, you know, meditation is a really good start to do that. And I think, you know, there are a lot of good apps that, you know, you can meditate from for two to five minutes and it just it just trains your brain to slow down and allows you to just keep coming back to a point of focus, whether it's your breath or a mantra or whatever or a guided meditation. I think that's something that's key for us. I think you know changing your external environment is is huge as well. You know, I I made my kids turn off all their notifications on their phone. Um, they don't use their phone. Their phone is in a different room when they're studying or doing their homework. Um, we have limits on their phone. And when they hit their limit, it goes on the charger, which is not in their room. You know, physicians can do the same thing. You know, you, you know I, tell, I tell radiologists that, that, that I work with, that, you know, when you're reading films, just read films and don't check your phone. Put your phone in your backpack for 45 minutes or, and then take a break check it and then go back uh, to do that. I think the whole idea of multitasking and, and walking in the halls, looking at your phone, I think that's, that's all detrimental. I, I, I don't think there's very ever uh, a good reason to do that, uh, you know, uh, for the most part and for most people. Yeah. I've, I've heard that if you like, let's say you're looking at films and you, and you alt tab to your email and then you go back to films um, you're 
efficiency in reading that film is going to be significantly less for, I, I don't remember, but a certain period of time. So you're actually decreasing your efficiency by, by clicking back and forth and, and trying to multitask. But really what you're doing is you're, I guess, unitasking, but poorly. You're not that, that's exactly right. Yeah, there are distraction studies done um, that say anywhere between 12 and 23 minutes to get back to your pre-distraction concentration levels. And this goes for you know people uh, uh, examining patients and using their EMR back and forth too. I mean, it's the same. It's the same. It's a context switch of your brain. It's not actually multitasking. Your brain is just rapidly shifting context back and forth. And there's a there's a cognitive price to be paid for that. And I think if you realize that, uh, you can get much more uh, enjoyment and peace by just focusing on what you're doing. But it, it takes it takes some constraints that are placed by your, you know, that have to be placed on your on your own. And, and I think it takes practice too. And one technique that I've read about is called the Pomodoro method. We we have egg timers, but I guess whoever came up with this has a tomato timer, or maybe it was Dr. Pomodoro. I don't know. But uh, you, you know, you set a little timer, and then you say, "I'm going to stay on this task for a certain period of time." And then over time, you are going to be able to uh, extend that without uh, without it being painful for you. You can just you practice your way to a longer attention. That's exactly right. And there's a great book called Deep Work by Cal Newport that talks exactly about all this stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, uh, the, they talk about the flow state, correct? Uh, he talks about flow states, but he also just talks about what you were referring to as well as some distraction studies. It's a great book, Deep Work. I think physicians could really benefit from that. Um, that and book. I think at, at a point we get away from even thinking of what we do as as deep work, right? Like, when I have the 10th patient in a row or I'm just removing earwax, it's not technically challenging. Um, it's not interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's not really, I don't know if I'm really in the flow state in that position. I personally, I find enjoyment in it, even though it's, it is relatively mundane uh, because I'm, yeah, I chat up the patient. I talk with them. I, you know, see if I can help them in any other way or just let, you know, just be an, an ear, I guess, no pun intended, an ear uh, for them to, just to to listen, like uh, like your barber might do. Um, so I think finding uh, finding ways to to make the mundane interesting might be might be helpful too. If you're not finding yourself with as many opportunities to be in the flow state, I, and you you kind of mentioned a little bit about meditation, um, and I think it's it's something that's misunderstood, right? People think that meditation is all about clearing your mind and i've got too much going on i can't clear my mind i've got i'm too busy i can't i can't do it but but that's not really what meditation is is it no it's not at all it's not about having an empty mind all it is is about cultivating um a, a, a single focus to your mind and when you when you you know when your monkey mind the buddhism called the buddhism called calls it the monkey mind when it starts just you know, going going off in various directions, you just bring it back to a single focus. And that bringing, the act of bringing it back to a single focus is really what meditation helps train um, you. And it lays down neural pathways. I mean, there's a, there's a huge field that's developing called health neuroscience. And, you know, you look at the effects on 
functional MRI with meditators. After just eight weeks, there's increased gray, mat gray matter thickness. There's uh, increased activities in, in areas like the hypothalamus and prefrontal, prefrontal cortex. There's decreased activity in the amygdala, which is really your zone of, or your uh, source of kind of negative emotions and anxiety. I mean, these are real findings that any physician can look at and be like, wow, that's, that's impressive. And, and that makes sense. And these aren't, we're not talking about, you know, 30 years of meditating. We're talking about 10 minutes uh, for eight weeks in this one program, but it's, it's been replicated many times. So I think it's just, it's just uh, laying down neural pathways and, and just training, training your, your brain to bring it back to a single point of attention. So you're, it's basically the practice of paying attention to what you want to, because ultimately your brain is going to get distracted. It's going to wander off in another direction. And your job during the meditation is to recognize that it's wandered away and then bring it back to that. So you're, what you're doing is over and over, you're just practicing paying attention to what you originally wanted to pay attention to. So it's, it's almost like a practice of paying attention. That's exact, and I love the way you just you just uh, phrase that. That's a great great way to say it. Yeah, that's it's completely true. And there are health benefits to it. So you know, as as physicians, it would be good for us to do it because of all the all the all the benefits that you were just discussing. But it also has other physiologic benefits. And as physicians, right, we see patients that suffer from heart disease and hypertension and anxiety and depression. And so there are real clinical benefits of it. So if we start doing it and we firsthand learn the benefits of it, it helps us, but then it'll help us explain it to our patients and demystify it to our, for our patients. So you mentioned some of the health benefits in the book. What were they again? Well, I mean, the American Heart Association uh, you know, recommends um, meditation as, a, as one of the only adjuvant therapies that's been proven by itself to, to lower blood pressure, lower the risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, um, and uh, improve immunity, immune function. I mean, these are all real, uh, measurable, objective uh, findings. And they were so robust that the American Heart Association is actually, you know, it's on their website. There's a whole white paper on it. Um, it immune function. So, you know, I've, I see patients with ear infections and sinus infections, and I'm constantly being asked, what do I do to strengthen my immune system? And they're all trying elderberry and vitamin C and echinacea and, and all of these things that have really been disproven. And I say, you know, get good sleep, exercise, eat well. Uh, but I didn't realize that I should also be telling them that meditation can actually help their immune system. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the common pathway for a lot of disease, as you know, is, is inflammation and stress is one of the one, one of the inputs on inflammation. And so if you can lower your stress response uh, through things like meditation, walking in nature is another one that's been proven to do that. So you know, just walking is, is a huge benefit. Um, obviously, optimal nutrition, sleep are the other things, but those are all, those are all um, uh, improvement in the stress response, which then in turn lowers inf inflammation, which uh, has a variety of cascades downstream. Sanj, is there anything else that you want to discuss 
with with us on the podcast today? Uh, no, I mean, I, I I think you know one of the things that I would probably ask everybody to do uh, is negative visualization. This is you know I've worked with lots of physicians, and I think one of the things that's transformative, certainly for me, is you know when you're at a red light, um, instead of reaching for your phone to check your email for the hundredth time that day, just uh, keep your phone in your glove in your console or whatever, and just take a breath in and visualize uh, something good in your life and then visualize your life without that just for 30 seconds. Um, it really, you know, our brains are wired to respond to bad versus good. So, you know, cultivating gratitude with writing down three good things at night, three times a week is also very good. But I think coupling that with just negative visualization um, on a drive home from work is really, really, uh, impactful and it's really worked wonders for a lot of physicians and myself included so i would just urge people to try that yeah the 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 gratitude i think there's a lot of good data behind that as well my uh my father-in-law is a very religious man and he says grace before every meal and so before each meal he recites things that he is thankful for and he is one of the most Zen-like, even-keeled. He is. He, it's, it's very rare that you see him flustered, and, and I think that's because before each meal, he recites things that he's grateful for, and uh, and it's had a powerful impact. And so we, yeah, we try to do that as well. So, so, so the practice of gratitude. You said write three things down three days a week. Yeah, three times a week before you go to bed. Three good things that happened and why. That's been that's got a ton of research behind it. It's probably positive psychology's greatest contribution to science is the study of gratitude. And then the flip side of that exercise is negative visualization, where you visualize, you know, your job, your group imploding, you lose your hospital contract. What are you going to do about it? Um, you know, and uh, it may seem like a morose um, technique, but it actually makes you appreciate what you have when you think about losing it. And uh, actually visualizing it in your mind is um, powerful. And I think that's from the Stoics as well, right? Didn't they dress in burlap once a week or uh, something yeah. to, something like that to, so that they would appreciate their fine garments? Yeah, they practiced poverty once a month, you know, and so they wouldn't fear it. And then they appreciated their, you know, uh, good food as opposed to their bland food that they, that they did. So they, they had a lot of mind tricks and mind hacks that they did. But, you know, positive psychology is really kind of backing up what they did with research, you know, and so it's really an interesting time in the field. Well, Sands, this was a really great uh, conversation. T tell us where, where people can find you. Uh, well, I have a website, positivepsychologyforphysicians.com. And, you know, that's a, that's a free program. It's broken into five uh, sessions that I do via uh, Skype. Uh, or in person, and uh, it's just you know uh, something that I, I I do because I, I when I managed a group of 100 radiologists over 10 years, I just used a lot of these techniques for uh, discontented physicians, and it worked. And you know I've got probably about a 34% increase on average in well-being based on the well-being index uh, using this. So it's a pretty pretty impactful program, and it's not that long. It's just five sessions. Um, and then, you know, if you'd like, check out my book, Positive Philosophy. Uh, all the proceeds go to a uh, school in Appalachia, Kentucky that my son and I do mission trips on 
uh, each year. So uh, I'd love to be able to support the school. So if, if you feel feel like it, check out the book and uh, contribute to a good good cause. Oh man, now I feel a little guilty that I got the uh, the the free version when it first came out. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing all this. And I really encourage everybody to uh, look him up and, and read his book, Positive Philosophy, Ancient and Modern Wisdom to Create a Flourishing Life. Thanks for having me, Brad. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and write us a review. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash physician's guide to doctoring. If you are interested in being a guest or have a question for a prior guest, send a message or post a comment.